Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. After a thrilling, captivating, anxiety-packed Celtics win over the Miami Heat, 104-103 in Miami to force a Game 7. Holy shit, I cannot believe what we just witnessed. I really can't. I mean, this is one of the most crazy sporting events I can remember in recent history as a Boston fan, and we've had a lot of these sporting events, right? The final five minutes or so were absolutely insane. The narrative completely changed in like half a second because of Derek White. But man, that was one of the craziest wins I can remember. And I'm not comparing the games, but the way this game made me feel, I haven't had that type of feeling since the Malcolm Butler game, where remember in the moment, you had the curse catch and you just felt like, all right, the Seahawks are going to run the time down. Eventually they're going to score and the Patriots are going to lose with another crazy catch in Arizona. Like that's how you felt in the moment, right? And then you're like, holy shit, did this really just happen? Did Russell Wilson really throw an interception? And that play happened so fast where you're thinking to yourself, he caught it. Yes, he actually caught it. The Patriots are going to win the Super Bowl. It's crazy. And that's sort of how I felt in this one. I felt the ending, right? Because you had the curse catch. And in real time, it took a while before the Butler interception, of course, a couple of plays as well. But I felt the same way here with the way that this game ended. Because Jimmy Butler, they he gets to the free throw line. He gets the three-shot foul. And it happened so slowly, right? Because first of all, Originally on the court, it's called a two-point foul. And TNT, which, by the way, another awful fucking broadcast from TNT. We'll get into that in greater detail in a little bit when we get to Reggie Miller's greatest hits of the night. But anyway, so my point being with that is they don't even show us 
that it was a three-point foul. Like you thought when you were watching, hey, maybe that's actually a three-point foul. TNT goes to commercial before you even see that. But anyway, I don't want to digress on the whole TNT thing. They missed Lowry and Jalen Brown getting into it earlier in the game as well. Just a really poor performance by them in general. But then after that, they take the timeout. Joe Mazzulla calls up a play. And you can see the first option is to Jason Tatum. But then Marcus Smart cuts. Smart gets the ball. He throws up a three. And actually when Smart released it, I was thinking, no chance it's going in. Like and Marcus Smart's not hitting the shot, right? Even though like I looked at it and it looked like he was online, which it was. It wasn't a bad effort by Smart to get that ball up there. But I was thinking to myself, there's no way this is going in, right? The Celtics, they have to lose this game based on how they just choked another clutch game. And we'll get into that as well. But you just felt like there's no way they win in this game. They're going to lose this game after Marcus Smart takes that shot. And then Derek White changes everything. He changes everything this season, right? Because... White is, the, and this is a great play by Derek White. He is the inbounder. Struess is playing off the ball. So he can't get it to Tatum because Struess jumps out when Tatum's trying to make the cut. So he finds Marcus Smart. He stops briefly at the three-point line because he sees that Marcus has a defender on him. And then he realizes, oh, Marcus is going to shoot that. Sprints right to the basket, gets the offensive rebound, makes it 104-103. But again, going back to like this whole Butler comparison, when he first shot that, like when he put the rebound back up, I'm like, there's no way that was off in real time, right? Because the reason I felt that way is because you never see that where did he really get the rebound in before the time elapsed? Because ordinarily it doesn't happen that way, right? It's always like, nah, he was late, right? And that's what I thought was going to happen. And then once they showed him, I'm like, holy shit, no, it's in. And you start screaming and you start going nuts. So it's that same sort of feeling that you had with the Malcolm Butler situation. And I get it. That was the Super Bowl. This is game six of the Eastern Conference Finals. But this was a season-saving play by Derek White, and it was that same crazy amount of different emotions that you had in a short span, like, man, they choked this away. They had the game. How did they blow it? Same thing with the Patriots. Like, Tom Brady just went down the field. He just destroyed the Legion of Boom for, like, the second or the third time, I should say, in the fourth quarter of that Super Bowl, and you're not going to win. All the good stuff you did all game long, you're not going to win because you can't get it together down the stretch, and then all of a sudden... You're just so happy that Derek White actually put that in. It was incredible. He bailed out all the narrative talk. There were a ton of issues down the stretch of this game, and we'll get into that, but that would have been the main storyline, right? What happened at Tatum in the second half? Marcus and Jalen missing late free throws. This has been an issue throughout the season and into the postseason. Al with the foul on Jimmy Butler late, and I know a lot of people were complaining about Jimmy wasn't even shooting. They're going to call that foul, okay? But... I just, I am thrilled beyond belief right now. That was absolutely awesome. And I'm happy that that situation played out for Derek White because Derek White is a guy that completely improved in terms of his three-point shooting. He's now hit three threes in each of the games in the series against Miami. He was, this season, unequivocally, from start to finish, the Celtics' third best player. I won't even accept nominations, okay, for who was the Celtics' third best player other than Derek White this year. He's second team All-NBA in terms of the defense. The guy was absolutely phenomenal. I told you I am the president of the Derek White Club. It is a great night for the president of the Derek White Fan Club, okay? So a lot of you I know were cautious at first about hopping into the Derek White Fan Club. I'm sure now everybody is in. Just an awesome night for him. And I'll say another thing about Derek White here is remember what happened in the Philly series. They removed him from the starting lineup. 
And it was kind of a weird situation because obviously everybody loves Rob on the team and what he brings to the table. But remember, a lot of the players were referencing, this is who we are. Like we're getting back to our identity as a defensive team with the double big lineup. And they weren't doing it like maliciously taking shots at Derek White, right? The players on the team, they were just saying, hey, we like playing this way. We like Rob on the court, right? And I almost, in a second, I felt like, uh, you know, this is kind of unfair to Derek White, who's had this great season and everybody's hyping up the fact that Rob's back in the lineup in terms of the players. Like, I almost felt bad for him. So for him to stay with it, he was great against Atlanta and then dipped off a little bit against Philly. And he has been unbelievable in this series against Miami. It's just rewarding to see a player that's worked so hard, first of all, in the offseason to improve his shot because he was a liability on the offensive end of the court in this same series last year. At times, Ime couldn't play him because he was afraid to shoot. And then everything he did to improve during the regular season, the guy played every single game. Nobody does that in the modern NBA. I'm just happy that Derek White had this opportunity because that was that was absolutely insane. Awesome. But we do have to get to the emotional roller coaster down the stretch. Someone needs to explain to me, okay? And look, they dodged a bullet. I am so happy they won. They're going to game seven, and I believe they're going to win game seven. But I just, I cannot understand the late game offense that this team runs. How many times are they going to dribble the fucking air out of the ball, wait until there's like eight seconds left on the shot clock before they get into anything? So it makes it so much easier to defend you. You can't put the defense in a blunder. The defense is not going to have to move at all. You're making their life easy, right? And you're also making their offense easy because you're not hitting shots. So they're getting out after a rebound. OK, you don't even get to set up your defense. You're getting in all these different mismatches and all that. So I just hate the way that they play offense late. Their offense kills their defense late in games, too. Like their defensive rating in clutch games. Clutch games just means basically the scoring margin is within five points with five minutes left or fewer. Their defensive rating entering this game in clutch time during the postseason, the Celtics were four and six in clutch games. Their defensive rating was a 126. And I blame a large portion of that on the fact that they're missing shots. They've got to be better. So let me just run some through some of these plays that I cannot comprehend late in the game. So it's 98-88 after Smart hit a three. 357 left. The Celtics have a 10-point lead with 357 left. The game should be over, okay? So Rob then misses a bunny from Jalen. Jimmy gets to the free throw line on the other end, makes it 98 to 90. Derek White, and he's the hero of the game, but he's at the top of the key running the offense. He waits until eight seconds left. He goes, and then he is in a situation where he misses it, but Jason Tatum gets the rebound, and Jason Tatum gets to the free throw line. Okay, so you're feeling good about it when it comes to that, because then at that point, you're up 100 to 91. Okay, Al takes an awful late shot clock shot on a two after Jimmy had hit a layup when it's 100 to 93. And it's not Al's fault. They ran the offense too late. Al gets a flaming bag and he just has to toss something up and it's not a good shot. Okay. Then Jimmy comes back. He hits a step back to make it 100 to 96. And you knew this was going in, right? This guy was horrible throughout the game. He was absolutely atrocious. He looked like he couldn't jump. A Bill text me, the boss text me that it looks like he doesn't have any lift. And I agreed like his shots looked bad. You knew he's hitting that one, right? It's Jimmy Butler. Okay. So then after that, it's 100 to 96. Tatum went with eight seconds left and he gets this like tough floater type shot that he misses. But the problem was you waited too long. You waited too long to make that play. Like you cannot wait until there are eight seconds left. It's, it's just you cannot create many opportunities when you go that late. So I don't know why the Celtics have got to figure that late stuff out in terms of they got to go quicker. But then after that, Tatum follows Butler after Tatum missed the layup. He hits one of two. But this shades of the Milwaukee game, 
where Caleb Martin gets the rebound, right? Like the Bobby Portis game. Caleb Martin, out of all people, gets the rebound. And luckily, Duncan Robinson misses a three because he had an opportunity there. But Caleb Martin with that rebound, you're thinking, oh, my God, this is really happening again. But then 103 left. Tatum took a three that wasn't even close. He's trying to end the game, and he just settled for a three nowhere close. Then Jalen gets a rebound, but he misses one of the two free throws. So it's 101 to 97. Okay. Jimmy goes by Al Horford, and Al was not good late in this game. He fouls Jimmy. You can't foul him. Okay. And I know it sucks to give up a layup there, but you can't foul him. If you're going to foul him, you've got to make sure he doesn't get an and one. So he makes it 101 to 100. Okay. So then Tatum gets the uh, the rebound after, or I should say Tatum misses, but then they come down the court when it's 101 to 100. Tatum misses a shot. They come down the other end. Duncan Robinson, I thought this was, I know you guys did too. He gets a wide open wing three. This guy is killing the Celtics in the series. Wide open wing three, and he misses it. And that's where it's 101-100. I said, it's over. You just dodged a major bullet. Duncan Robinson missed that shot. You're going to win this game. But... Okay, then they have to foul, right? Because there's less than 24 seconds left in the game. Marcus gets fouled. Marcus misses a free throw. So he hits one of two. So now you're in a position at this particular point where Jimmy Butler has an opportunity where it's the Celtics are now up 102-100. And then you get that Jimmy play that we alluded to where, of course, Al Horford fouls him. He hits the three shots to make it 103-102. So before that Derek White final possession where he gets the rebound, the Celtics were outscored 15 to four and they didn't even have a field goal. You had two missed free throws from Jalen and Marcus and you had Jason Tatum hit two free throws. So down the stretch of this game, you didn't even get a basket like you have to be better than that in these late game situations. And I keep harping on it, right? The four and six record in clutch games. And I look at it and I know you can the defense is not good in clutch time either, but I put it all on the offense because they go so slow that they hurt themselves on the other end of the court, right? So if you look at the clutch time stats, their pace in clutch time in the postseason is 14th out of 16 teams. And in the regular season, and they had a good record in clutch time, but their pace was 28th of 30 teams in clutch time. I don't understand why they play so slow. It's like, Everything you did to get this lead, why do you just abort that plan late in the game? You should be running. And I'm not saying you have to run as fast as you ordinarily do, but you can't be going that slow. You just don't give yourselves many opportunities, right? It'd be like having a play in the NFL where there's only one read. Like, hey, if we're not throwing the ball in this particular play to Randy Moss, we're not throwing it to anybody. Like, there, you don't, you leave yourself no option. You You don't have any options when you wait that long. So it's just sort of annoying. But... It's just such a weird game. There's so many things that you say, hey, this is this is a gutsy win until the last five minutes or so. Like, this is a really, the Celtics showed up. They played tough, and you feel like at times, yeah, that was a great win. It was so gutsy. But then those last five minutes, I mean, it was nightmarish, right? Because the Heat should have never had an opportunity to have a chance to win the game late, right? And they almost did. They should have won the game if it's not for Derek White. But think about it. Coming into this game in the playoffs, the Celtics were 0-6 when they hit 12 threes or fewer. They, of course, did not hit 12 threes tonight. They hit seven, and they won that game. That's a sign of toughness, right? All season long, we've been saying, what happens when your threes don't fall? And the Celtics have basically been a mediocre team when their threes don't fall. When their threes fall, they've been really good. And tonight, they found a way to win, even though they're outscored by 21 points from three-point territory. Their defense, I thought there were some bad plays in terms of leaving shooters. 
but their two-point defense was elite. The Heat in this game were 16 of 52, 30.8% in the paint, the worst game in the NBA this season for any team. They've done a really good job just completely cutting off the basket from the Jimmy Butler's, the Bam out of Iles. We'll get to that in a second. They just took those guys out of the game, except for Jimmy Butler in the last couple minutes here. And for the most part, outside those last few minutes, they did a good job on Jimmy. And even like late on Jimmy, that three he hit, you live with that. And he's not going to hit that three many times. Like the Al Horford foul, that's this is a bad play by Al. Both fouls on Al. Those are bad plays on Al. So I know Jimmy hit some shots late, but I wasn't like, oh, this guy's completely taken over. You can't stop. I just felt like it's dumb fouls by Al. And he hit a lucky three that most of the time he's not going to hit that three, even though it's Jimmy Butler. That's not something he's going to hit routinely throughout the large majority of the game, right? But also, you think about it too, like some of the plays they made on Jimmy, it was Rob had an incredible block when it was 78 to 68. And then... Tatum had a block on Jimmy from behind when it was 48-41, and Derek White kind of stood him up. Tatum came from behind and blocked him. And then how about Derek White just like in transition, verticality went up with Jimmy Butler. Jimmy misses the shot when it's 59-55. So they've done a really nice job on Jimmy. And then bam, they really took him out of the game. He was a non-factor. Al blocked him badly late. How about that? Like straight, like this is like straight, straight ahead. Al just went up to the rim and blocked. Bam, that was an awesome play. He had 11 points on four of 16 shooting. 78-68, Bam tries to get a floater going, and he's completely stopped by Robert Williams. Rob did a really nice job on Bam. And then, of course, I referenced the block that he had at the rim. Bam in the paint in this game was 3 of 13, 23.1%. He was 3 of 13 in the paint. And I thought that is a big credit to... Joe Missoula in this sense. One of the things that Joe Missoula has done, one of the adjustments, we get on him a lot about not making adjustments. One of the adjustments that he has made, Joe Missoula, which I give him a ton of credit for this, they are comfortable switching any one of their players with the exception of Derek White onto Bam. Because basically what they're saying is Tatum is big and strong enough. Jalen is big and strong enough. Obviously, Grant coming off the bench and Rob and Al, we get all that. But there are even Marcus, he's strong enough to deal with Bam. Because if you notice with Bam, when he has these big nights, it's when he's getting like these advantages, right? Where it's a handoff, he's getting right to the basket. That's why I think at times you saw Bam dribbling the ball off the court just to see if he could get some sort of advantage going downhill. I think Spolster is trying to get him going because what the Celtics are doing earlier, when they're trying to get through those screens and they're not switching on to Bam, Bam was getting downhill. He's getting to that nice little push shot, that floater game that he has, right? But what the Celtics have said is now. We'll switch everything. So the big adjustment that's been made, and these guys are holding up on Butler and Bam. So if it's Tatum covering Jimmy Butler and Bam comes up with him with Rob Williams, they're switching it. And Rob's done a really nice job on Jimmy Butler. And the Tatums, the Jalen Browns of the world, the Marcus Smarts, they've done a really nice job on Bam out of bio. So they really can't get anything going from a pick and roll perspective because Bam can't figure out how to go by these Celtics defenders. He's not really good when he has to stop and think. Like, he's not a guy that can just ISO you up. He needs to have an advantage. And that's been a really nice adjustment that Joe Missoula has certainly had in this game. So the toughness factor with the Celtics, when you're not hitting your threes, how are you going to win? They commit seven fouls in the first seven minutes of the third quarter. Some of those are dumb fouls, but you faced adversity in this game. You faced adversity. Jalen was dealing with foul trouble. And this team, I give them credit. This is a tough performance, even though they almost gave it away really at the end of the game. They almost gave away the series, right? And thank Derek White for saving these guys and saving the narrative. Just an unbelievable hustle play. But doesn't that 
That whole play by Derek White, isn't that sort of like a microcosm of a season? He's just always in the right place at the right time. He's always making the right play. He's just such an intelligent player. I love that moment for Derek White. All right, I thought it was a bizarre Tatum game. And I know I'm complaining about a guy that had 31 points because he had, what, 25 in the first half. I'm not really complaining about him. I just thought it was weird because the way the game started off, I'm like, he's going to go for 40. He didn't score in the third quarter. So early in this game, gets a wing three, and he gets fouled, gets to the free throw line, hits all three. Then he gets Bam on a switch, goes right by Bam, scores at the basket to make it 16-14. Then he was getting to his pull-up game from two-point territory. He's got Caleb Martin, a smaller guy on him, can create space, pull up over Martin. Then he sees Zeller on the court. This is another thing that the Celtics have now done in this series. They played Zeller off the court tonight. They played Kevin Love off the court in the last game. So they see Zeller on there, and it's like, hey, the Celtics are doing it now. It's like when Peyton Pritchard was on the court in game one. Let's go after Peyton Pritchard if I'm Jimmy Butler. Zeller's on the court. Tatum says, come on. Come on, Rob. Bring him up here. Bring him up here. Tatum goes right by him. And he gets the high screen from Rob, gets to the free throw line, hits two free throws. Then these guys were flying around. He had an offensive rebound. By the way, Tatum now his fourth 10 rebound game in the series. He is just... And we talked about this a little bit briefly the other day, but he is such an underrated rebounder, great rebounder. So offensive rebound, then he finds Derek White for a three, White hits it, makes it 34-27. Semi-transition, gets to the free throw line, hits two free throws. Gets to the line on Jimmy, gets Jimmy a little bit of taste of his own medicine on a shot fake, hits both free throws, makes it 42-38. Then the next possession, he goes to his mid-range game, hits a mid-ranger over Butler, makes it 44-39. Then he hits a fadeaway over Butler, like that Kobe fadeaway, the next possession to make it 46-39. Then he drove by Jimmy to make it 48-41. And then that block I alluded to, that happened right after that when it was 48-41. So three straight plays, mid-ranger over Jimmy, fadeaway over Jimmy, drives by Jimmy, and then he blocks Jimmy in terms of that fourth play on the defensive side. So at that point, I thought the series was over. I'm like, Jason Tatum has completely figured out Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler, and Jimmy Butler struggled to defend it because Tatum is just, at this point in his career, he's strong enough to get separation from Jimmy, and he's bigger than Jimmy in terms of his height, so he can just shoot right over him. So anyway, then he had a nice lob to Rob, and then he went right by Butler again to get to a layup to make it 52-41. He went by Butler, hit a floater, and then he was just dominating in that first half. So I felt like he was going to have 40 points, as I alluded to. And then I don't know what happened to him in the second half. He just wasn't aggressive. Like he was isolating guys up in the first half. He was mismatch hunting. I thought they did a good job getting the ball, like sort of on that wing where he can back somebody in he or he can go right by him. Or if he really wants, he can go back to the middle of the court and get a screen. But he's really operating by himself on that wing, especially when they clear out that corner. So I thought they did an outstanding job getting him the ball in nice spaces in the first half. And I don't know why that wasn't more of an emphasis in the second half. So I hope they do more of what they did in the first half in the second half because Tatum was basically unstoppable in that first half. All right, Jalen, 26 points. Had some tough turnovers, some Jalen turnovers, four in total. I thought that his shot making early was huge. And he had some really big offensive rebounds too, which is not usually something that Jalen does, but he had five of them. When they go zone, you have to crash the boards and Jalen did a really good job at that. But Early in the game, drive and finish in semi-transition. Then he hit a pull-up two to make it 5-4. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, they need Jalen shot making because Jalen, in terms of his shooting in the postseason, he had been really, if you go back to the series against Atlanta, he was just unbelievable. Remember, he was hitting everything in that series. And then 
for most of the Philadelphia series, Jalen was really good as well. But in this series, he had sort of been struggling. And you needed Jalen to find a way to get into rhythm. Because if you look at it, entering this game, two's outside the restricted area. He was 18 of 43. And against Atlanta, he was 38 of 82, 46.3%. So seeing him hit that nice mid-range jumper made me feel optimistic that Jalen was going to have a big night. Then he had the offensive rebound. And after the offensive rebound, he hit a pull-up over Martin to make it 9-9. Tonight. So two threes, or excuse me, two twos outside of the restricted area. That's where Jalen's been so good throughout the season. And we saw that on display. Had a nice Euro step in transition around Martin. He had a pull-up two over Bam. And then he drove, he found Rob for a layup, and Jalen's not the best passer in the world. A really nice pass to Rob Williams. Offensive rebound, gets to the free throw line. And then the turnovers start happening, right? He's dribbling at the top of the key, and he can see that there's help. You can see it. There's help cheating off. It was Grant who was on the wing. Jalen's dribbling with his left hand. The help is coming. Like, it's right in front of you. He dribbles into two defenders, loses the ball. The next time down, he's stripped by Kyle Lowry in the post. So it's always these things with Jalen. He's an unbelievable shot maker, and he loses the ball left and right. Then he had another offensive rebound, which left to which led to a Rob Lob from Tatum. He had the charge in transition, which it just can't happen. Struess is right in front of you, and this has been an issue with Jalen, where he's getting himself in foul trouble. So that's not only just a foul; it's a turnover as well. But 9:41 left in the third, he picks up that fourth foul, and you're kind of worried, like, hey, is he going to be able to last? Luckily, he did. But just with Jalen, it's. <laughs> Some of the, and he missed the late free throws we alluded to earlier. Some of these turnovers just make you rip your hair out. And then he hits one of these unbelievable threes. And you're thinking to yourself, man, like Jalen's going to have a big night. And he did have a big scoring night to 26 points or whatever it was. But the problem that I have with Jalen is just, again, too many sloppy turnovers. That would be the one issue with Jalen. With Smart, I thought it was the typical Smart game. Okay, he was minus 10, which only Max Struess was worse. He had some huge plays, and he had some plays that you're ripping your hair up. They are just absolutely mind-numbing plays, right? So early in this game, one thing I give Smart a ton of credit for, for the second straight game, Smart has set the tone defensively. So right at the beginning of the game, it's 3-2. He blew up two handoffs on the same possession. They're trying to run a dribble handoff to Struess. He blew it up twice, where Struess could not get the ball. So that set the tone from a defensive perspective. Okay, then... He hit a wing three early, and Mark has been shooting the ball much better. Hit another wing three to make it 29-21. He got an and one on Vincent where he just takes advantage of his size. That's something they've done well at times during the season as well. And then it's 42-38. This is a bad turnover. He just travels in transition. Like, like you can't travel in transition. You got numbers. Then he hit a wing three. They got him the ball in the post out of a timeout. Goes at Vincent again, makes it 64-60. And then he had a nice little pump fake to get around Martin and hit a three made at 69-62. And you're like, this is a great Marcus Smart game. But then next time down or a couple plays later, it's 78-68. The Celtics have numbers in transition. Jason Tatum's wide open on the right wing. Smart's on the left wing. He jumps into the air to make a pass and he travels. He comes down before he gets rid of the ball. And that's just, you know where you're going. He almost wanted to make like a fancy pass behind the defender. Just make the right play and Tatum's going to go to wide open three. And unfortunately, he didn't. But Then he had some bad defensive plays where he helped on a Lowry drive and it led to a wide open three for Robinson where you're thinking to yourself, why would you help there? Robinson's an elite three-point shooter. Lowry's not going to drive and do any damage when he gets into the lane anyway. He doesn't want to shoot. Stay home with Robinson. Then on the very next possession, he was back cut by Robinson. So I just thought from a smart perspective, 
He had some really big plays. He had some mind-numbing turnovers, and he had some lapses defensively, but he also had some real big defensive games as well. So this is the complete Marcus Smart game. He drove you crazy. He hit some big shots, and he had some mind-numbing turnovers. This is the Marcus Smart experience that we've all come to know and love. Okay. And then Rob, I thought Rob was awesome. I thought Rob was tremendous in this game. And I know he didn't play a lot of minutes, but he had the 10 points. He had the seven rebounds. He had the putback on early in the game, putback on the Jalen miss. Then he kept the ball alive to get himself that lob that Tatum threw to him. And I'm going through some of the other stuff that he had. He got a board and a foul. He hit one of the free throws, but nonetheless, gets a rebound, gets to the free throw line. He had a nice poke away from Bam when it was 55-47. I mentioned he got Jimmy on an island a bunch of times in this game, and he held up. Like, for example, he stopped Jimmy, and Jimmy just missed a shot near the rim because Rob was too long for him. And then he had a night after that nice rim run, gets down, gets a free throw, and actually gets an and one, hits the free throw. And then he stopped Jimmy at the rim with his verticality as well. And then Bam tried to go at him, and he stopped him on a floater where Bam's floater was short. And the reason it was short is because he had to rush it. He had to, he had to rush the shot because Robert Williams is right there. So I thought all in all, this was a tremendous, absolutely outstanding game from Robert Williams. Like you felt his energy the entire time that he was on the court. And you can see when Jimmy Butler gets him on a switch, he doesn't want to shoot. He doesn't even look at the basket. He gets in the lane and he's trying to kick it out. And what Rob's done a much better job at as the series has gone on, he's not falling for the pump fake. He's staying on his feet. All right. How about Joe Mazzulla? couple of things I really liked. Started the second quarter again when Tatum was on the bench. Smart and Al on the court. They put Hauser in. Hauser barely played, but I give him credit. I told you I wanted Hauser. I don't want Pritchard on the floor. They went with Hauser in this game, of course, because Brogdon is dealing with the injury. I gave him credit earlier for finding, hey, we can switch on Bam and Jimmy. That's been really good for them as well. I didn't like Tatum on the bench to start the fourth. I don't understand why they can't just play him the entire second half. We see all these other superstars in the NBA doing it. Jason Tatum is 25 years old. Just play him the entire second half. There's no reason he should be coming out. And then one thing that stuck out to me is like, this is how we know we've been right about the timeouts all year, that he hasn't been good in terms of calling his timeouts because it's 98-88. He's jumping up and down for a timeout. Did you see that? He's sprinting and then he's jumping up and down. I'm like, great. This is awesome, Joe. I love it. Call the timeout. So he's done a much better job over the past three games or so calling timeouts. And I give him credit. Like I said, he made some adjustments in the series that have really worked. Going back to Derek White, that was the right move. Now, I told you that I would have rather take Al out of the lineup if you want to go small than Raw, but he's made the right moves. Give him credit. He's pushed the right buttons. The whole scheme they've come up defensively, guarding Bam, and of course, guarding Jimmy Butler is clearly works. I give Mizzou a lot of credit. He looked incompetent through the first three games, and he's been really good ever since that point. I don't have much to complain about with Missoula whatsoever. Okay, we do have to do our check-in on Reggie Miller. So... And by the way, my friend Megan Ottolini tweeted this out to me that because I'm on Twitter tweeting about the Reggie comments because they're just getting over the top. Reggie said at the end of the game where Derek White hit that shot that went in, as we all know now, I don't think he got that in time, but great winning effort. So Reggie's saying that, first of all, he doesn't think it counts, but it was a great winning effort, even though by Reggie saying he didn't think it got in, that means they lost the game. He said great winning effort, but by what Reggie thought, they lost the game, okay? And then earlier on in the game, the one that killed me is he's talking about Jason Tatum where he gets to the free throw line in transition where he sort of does one of his Euro steps. 
And Reggie says, he's not as strong as a Giannis or as a LeBron. He says he's not as big and he's not as strong as a Giannis or LeBron. I'm like, uh, yeah, no shit. LeBron is like 250. Giannis is 250. Jason Tatum is 210. I don't think you need to explain to the audience that Jason Tatum is not as strong as Giannis and LeBron. And then my favorite Reggie quote of the night is after that play where Grant Williams got the foul where the inbound did not happen yet and Grant ran through Bam, so you get a free throw shot there. Reggie Miller says, anyone can shoot it. We assume it'll be Jimmy Butler or Gabe Vincent. Max Drew shot it. So literally, there's five guys on the court. Reggie picks two of the guys, of the five guys on the court. He doesn't even get it right. He says, it's obviously going to be, we assume it's going to be Jimmy Butler or Gabe Vincent. It ends up being Max Drews. So out of all the guys that Reggie picked, it ends up being somebody else. And by the way, he did actually miss that shot, which is pretty funny to me. But anyway, it's just... I cannot wait till this series is over. Just, I mean, I want the Celtics to win and go to the NBA Finals for obvious reasons. Obviously, I want the Celtics to do well, but man, the Reggie thing. And I'll tell you this, like early in the game when he made the Giannis comment of he, saying Tatum's not as strong as Giannis and LeBron, I was cool with it because the Celtics are winning and I wasn't, I didn't have a ton of anxiety at that particular point in time. But late in the game, when he's talking about the Struess thing, I was starting to get aggravated with Reggie. I really was. It's just... Absolutely. That guy is unbelievable. Van Gundy, I don't think he was great either tonight. Van Gundy, I don't have as big of an issue with Van Gundy as I do with with Reggie. Now, he repeats himself a lot, but some of the stuff he repeats is right. Like Bill pointed out on Twitter that he was right about the fact that they were not going at Jalen after Jalen picked up that foul. But some of the stuff that he just he continually repeats like. Remember when they were missing all the shots, the Heat were? He kept saying, well, it's not an effort thing. Yeah, we know. We know the Heat are playing hard. They're just not executing. He kept saying this a million times. Again, it's not an effort thing. Yeah, we know, Stan. It's not an effort thing. But, man, I got to say, what an absolutely insane night. I had a ton of fun watching the game until the final five minutes. Like, I felt like the Celtics were going to win the game. I thought they came out with the necessary energy. They brought it from a defensive perspective. Tatum and Jalen were both great early on in this game. But man, I was not prepared for what we witnessed in the final five minutes, and it was just unreal. But now we got a game seven. One more, and the Celtics make history like the Red Sox made history. I cannot wait until Monday night. And by the way, I don't know about you, but it's a Saturday. So, I mean, it doesn't affect me as much as most people that work a normal job. But I could imagine, like, didn't you want this game to be early because it's Saturday? Like, if you're not working all day, it, you got to wait until 830. It's just it's sort of frustrating. All right. A lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll get to a couple of your calls because I know you guys are probably fired up after a big C's win. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike, Saturday night edition after a huge win for the Seas as they now advance to Game 7. Thank you, Derek White. Thank you, Derek White. All right, let's get to a couple of your calls. That number six one seven three nine six seven one seven two. Who's up first? Brian, it's Jack from Gansett. I lost my voice. I can't believe this game. 
I hugged my brother harder than I've <laughs> hugged him before. I'm just so happy. I'm ready for game seven. I can't wait. I really believe in this team. The defense showed up. Let's just go out and win it. Screw the analytics. Screw everything. Let's just go make history. Let's go watch. I love it. Let's go Celtics. Game seven, baby. Hell yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. I like that you lost your voice and you still managed to call. I appreciate that. That was, it was incredible. And you're right, man. Like that experience that we had at the end of the game, throw out all the numbers, throw everything out. It was just, it was absolutely insane. And it is kind of weird. Like ESPN's analytic model, which has been terrible. They could actually be right about this thing. Like the percent, they still had the Celtics as the favorite at one point when it was like three, one, like they may be right with this whole thing. And what was it before the series? The Celtics have a 97% chance at winning or whatever. They may be the, the biggest winners of this whole series. The biggest loser of this whole series. Either way, no matter who wins is Reggie. I mean, Reggie's been just it, it completely exposed. I, I don't know how TNT can come back with that guy as the lead for next year. They'll have the Western Conference. But you can't do it again. I mean, it's just, it's such a big moment. It These are unbelievable. Like, this is an unbelievable game, especially the way that it ended. You can't have Reggie on the broadcast. It's just, it's unfair to the viewer. All right, who's up next? Brian, it is David from Kentucky. The Celtics did something that I, I really don't know that they have done since the net series of game one last year. They won a game that they should not have won. Played like crap down the stretch. The three ball did not fall. Just all the problems and frustrations, a, a challenge that ended up with a, an extra point for our opponent, like all of the things that have gone wrong this Celtic season, the frustrations, the voices in the back of our heads that we all thought, maybe maybe this is not possible, and survive a game six, going home to the Garden with a chance to go to the NBA final. Here's my question for you. Do you think that that was the last punch, the last blow that that the Heat had? They looked gassed. Jimmy's asking them for one more stop on the bench. And I wonder if we didn't just take that best shot and do what we had not done all year and be the resilient, better team and win a game that we really shouldn't have won because we were just better. Man. The world is in front of this team. If they can put together one more here and then four more uh, against a, a Denver team that's really freaking good, man, uh, it could be what we have believed this team could be for a couple of years. But, man, always love the show. What a great night. I hope the, the just I hope hope that you enjoy this and, and that everybody listening uh, has enjoyed this as much as I have. One more to win this one to, to, to get back and, and have a chance to redeem last year. But thanks, as always. Love the show. Yeah, Dave, a lot of meat on the bone there. A lot of great stuff. And I'm with you, man. Like, this is, it's awesome now. Like, you're relieved that they won the game, that Derek White hit the shot, and it's awesome to be in the middle of history again. We're almost reliving now. I, I know it's different because it's the Red Sox and it's the Yankees, but it's just an awesome experience having this going on in our lives again where this team has a chance to make history in the NBA. Now, they dug themselves this hole, right? And if they had lost this game tonight, if Derek White didn't hit the buzzer beater, we're talking about, how do they not win either game one or game two? Because then you'd already have like a game seven on the docket, right? So you would have already saved yourself from that. But it is enjoyable right now to see this team when their backs against the wall. And this team has been questioned for its toughness. Or are they mentally tough enough? I've always thought that was kind of ridiculous because they did go into Milwaukee and win 
game six last year, right? They went into Miami and they won game seven last year. So I've always thought that point was sort of overrated. But I mean, the late game execution is the thing that irritates me more than anything. I don't think that's a toughness thing. I just think that's why do you guys wait forever to go to the basket? And it is a good point about it's a game that the Celtics ordinarily wouldn't win. They need to hit threes. They didn't hit threes. They still found a way to pull this thing off. That was a weird review, too, that he referenced as well. But this has been unbelievable. Unbelievable ride that we have been on with this team. It's really crazy. All right. Who's up next? Hey, Brian. Abraham Smith going from uh, Burbank, California, born and raised in Massachusetts, fifth generation Red Sox fan. Um I don't know how much you follow sports, but there was a, a, an athletic event tonight involving one of your local uh, sporting concerns. <laughs> Holy shit. Holy shit. I don't know. Wh- <laughs> I mean, we're going to remember this as the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Derek White putback game. And I'm trying to rank it. Like, it's, it's obviously it's not the Dave Roberts stolen base. It's not, you know, Hondo steals the ball. But uh, where is, I mean, it's the Olympic game. Is it that level? I, I try to, the way it makes me feel was the same as the um, uh, 2011 in the Bruins run, Game 7 against the Habs, the OT goal. It was Lucic or mm-hmm. – uh, it, it was Lucic or Nathan, Nathan Horton, I forget. One of them, one of them scored the goal. That, uh, and, and that just set a tone, I felt like, going forward. Um, that uh, the, the, the same – I got the same feeling tonight. Pardon all my stammering, but I'm kind of excited. Uh, all right, Brian, love the show. Um, let me know what you think uh, other past events are, are in the same genre as the Derek White putback game. All right, adios. All right, great stuff, Abraham. So a couple come to mind. A game six last year against Milwaukee will come to mind because it's very similar to this one, right, where they had to win to stay alive. Now, that one was the Tatum performance. This one was just a wild ending. I compared it earlier in the show off the open just – not in terms of the magnitude of the game, but the emotions like the Butler game where you felt like you're definitely going to win and now you're definitely going to lose. And then, holy shit, some crazy play happens. Butler intercepts Russell Wilson in the end zone and Derek White gets that put back. So that's where I'd be at in terms of from how I felt my emotions at that particular point in time. This is bigger than the Olympic game, though, right? Because you never felt like that team actually had a chance to win an NBA championship. This team legitimately has a chance to win an NBA championship. And we could see changes with this team in the offseason. And if they lost this game, maybe the changes are more likely than not. If they don't, if they, you know, if they win game seven, you, you would hope there's not going to be many changes, but maybe they would. Maybe they would be more serious in terms of considering changes if that hadn't happened. Another game that comes to mind is the Benintendi catch. Now, the Red Sox were ahead in that series, no matter what. But for Benintendi to come in and make that grab, that's such a risky play. Because remember, Kimbrell didn't have it. If that goes by him, the Astros are back in that series. That one certainly comes to mind as well. I'm trying to think of some other ones here off the top of my head. Oh, you know what comes to mind is 08 when the Celtics played the Cavs. And the reason I say that is that was the Pierce-LeBron duel, where it was, what, 45, I believe, for LeBron and 41 for Pierce. But that one was sort of like this team, right, where now LeBron was the best player in the series, obviously, and he was the MVP and all that. But it's like you got this loaded team with Garnett and Ray and Paul, and you had to go seven with Atlanta. So it kind of had that similar vibe where it's like you couldn't win in Atlanta. You couldn't. And Al Horford, ironically, was a rookie on that team. That's how long Al's been on the, in the league. But then you got to the next series against the Cavs, and you didn't have an answer from LeBron. And you're thinking, no way. 
This team just won, what, 66, 67 games. There's no way you're losing in round two to the Cavaliers. And it almost happened if it wasn't for that epic Paul Pierce performance. That's kind of how I feel about this team. Like, you should definitely beat the Miami Heat in this series. You're the way more talented team. You're the deeper team. You should win the series. So that kind of make. I'm not saying the games are similar, but just sort of in terms of how it made you feel, right? All right, great stuff on the calls, guys. Remember, you can leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172. You can also email us as well at offthepike at gmail.com. So Monday, we're going to have a Game 7, and make sure to get your voicemails and emails in because we'll be reacting to that. And it's going to be another long wait for everybody because most of you, of course, are going to be off on Monday. We bring in the producer of Off the Pike, Jamie McClellan, who did do his part. He's got the Celtics jacket on again. He's got the Red Sox underneath it. So the second straight game, he has worn the jacket from all Celtics fans. Jamie, I thank you. I think outside of Derek White, you're, you're probably welcome. the second. You're probably the second most <laughs> responsible for why the Celtics are advancing here. How you feeling, man? How were you feeling in those last couple of minutes? Because I got to tell you, that was a roller coaster. Yeah, I mean, I thought they blew it for sure. And I think uh, one of the callers mentioned that that Missoula challenge made them change it from two shots to three shots. Yeah. That would have been the most infamous challenge of all time, I feel like. I, I don't think I've ever seen that. Like, no. when you're the team challenging, you know what I mean? No, I've never seen crazy. that. crazy. But um, I was trying to think, too, what it reminds me of after that second call. And I think the Butler Super Bowl is a great example. I think maybe, like, the... Like, the emotions like the, of it, right? Because yeah. When, but, when they, yeah, when they're down there, you're thinking to yourself... Man, this like sucks. Like, okay, you thought finally, like it'd been ten years since the Patriots I, had that I first dynasty. You yeah. felt like finally Brady's back and look at what he just did. And then, oh my God, curse. And you're thinking back to all oh, the Tyree catch, the helmet catch, everything ha- and it's the same stadium. And then it's like, wait, hold on. You you have to actually you had to like do a double take watching your TV, like Butler caught that. He actually caught that. Whoa. And that was this one tonight, right? Where it's like, okay. Smart. First of all, Jimmy, you're like, first of all, how do you blow this lead? Jimmy, Jimmy gets fouled. He hit, you know, he's hitting all three free throws, right? And you come back down the other end. Smart takes the shot. And then all of a sudden, Derek White puts it back in. And I'm thinking, he didn't get that, did he? And then it's like, oh my God, he did. And they won. And you're just like, holy shit. Like you go from being so angry to so Mm -hmm. happy in like a split second. It's like the only other time I can remember that in sports was the whole situation. I can remember it the other way. Like, Aaron fucking Boone against Tim Wakefield yeah. hitting the home run. Like I can remember it the other way, but not the way that it happened. Like that was that was incredible, man. And what a play! I, I feel so happy for Derek White. I know. I love that He's guy. The man. Yeah, I, lo- I think everyone loves Derek White. Like what a great guy! I'm so happy it was him. I love Derek White. He's the man. He is the man. All right, Jamie. So what's the plan for Monday? You gotta you gotta wear the Celtics jacket again. By the way, it, obviously most of you can't see the video. This is a legit old school like '90s Celtics jacket. It's sick. And I got my 90s Pedro, Pedro jersey. Got to get Pedro to game seven, man. Let's go. We got we to gotta do some uh, research on that, see what's going on with that, with Ortiz and everyone. Yeah, well, you got Millar, any intel? Yeah, Millar did a video. Um, he was, I believe it was just with Dan Roach. And he, Millar's a big guy mm. in terms of attention. He, he's not, he likes to get attention. I mean, if you ever <laughs> yeah, heard him on the yeah, Nesson yeah. broadcast, you know he likes attention. The guy's, whole time he's true. talking about himself. It's like, hey, uh, Kevin. Game going on, bro. Maybe talk about the game a little bit, but yeah, it'd be cool if they bring some of those guys there. I just I can't imagine what the garden's gonna be like Monday. Oh my god. Like it was epic for game five, right? Like game seven. Yeah. 
it's going to be incredible. Speaking speaking of the the Red Sox too, I was I was thinking earlier. I'm like, if they're going to do the impossible and come back 03, they got to have a signature epic dramatic win like the 04 Red Sox. You know, they were this it is, couldn't yeah. just all be cakewalks. And you, and they did it today. I'm like, okay, this is happening. Yeah, th- this literally is the equivalent of a walk off. He mm-hmm. hit the bu- like it's a, it's, it's tip off. Yeah, literally, as the buzzer was about to go off, Derek White hits that shot. I'm looking now, where are the Red Sox? I think the Red Sox are off on Monday. So I'm sure a lot of those guys. Yeah, so yeah, the Red Sox will be in the building because they played, Mm. opened up a series against the Reds on Tuesday. So I I assume a lot of the Red Sox will be at this game. Kraft will be there. It'll be fun. It'll be fun, man. I I am so, I I just. It's going to be fun. Right now, we're recording well after midnight. I, I don't know if I'm going to bed tonight. Good thing is tomorrow's Sunday, right? <laughs> like, I don't think I'm going to sleep. How the fuck am I going to go to sleep after this, man? I, not to mention, I just did down a monster at like 1130. So <laughs> I actually <laughs> haven't watched the highlights yet, so I'll have to watch those at least three more times tonight. Oh, sure. yeah. And you got to watch like the extended. I may rewatch the game. At, at least, actually, you know what? I, I, I'm going to rewatch. The, the, first last five minutes qu- the, the first half with Tatum and Jalen going off, and then I'm going to watch. No, not the last five minutes. I cannot put myself through that. Pain. Too stressful. Like, yeah, that <laughs> offense was brutal, but I got to watch the last play. I'm going to watch the last play like eight times tonight. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. I appreciate it. Go Celtics. Go Celtics is right. All right, coming up next, I do want to touch on the Red Sox real quickly here because I watch both these games against the Diamondbacks, of course, and I get some big takeaways from them. We'll do that next. Welcome back into Off the Pike, recording late after that huge Celtics win. Unreal. Cannot wait for Monday. This is going to be so much fun. Before we go, though, I did want to touch on the Sox real briefly because it was an interesting start for Sale on Friday night. Five innings, four hits, just the one earned run, and which is good, obviously, the one earned run. But three strikeouts, just three of them, and one walk. And remember, the previous three starts in May, 10 strikeouts, nine strikeouts, and eight strikeouts. So I don't know about you guys that watched that game on Friday, but I was a little concerned because now naturally the strikeouts being down, part of it is he only pitched the five innings, but you're watching the game. And the thing that concerned me is that 93 was flashing a lot on the gun, right? And remember the velocity over the past three starts had been back. So he ended up sitting at 94 flat, 94.0 miles per hour in his heater. And the Padres start, he was at 95.4. The start against the Cardinals, he's at 94.9. And the Phillies start, he was at 96. So basically 95 or better, that 94.9. Basically 95 for the last three starts. And then he's at 94. So I was a tad concerned about the velocity. And then what happens? He didn't have a lot of swings and misses, right? 70 whiffs on 33 swings. That's just 21.2%, a real low number. So if you do that total in terms of the swinging strike percentage, the percentage of strike uh, swinging strikes in terms of the total pitches that's 9.6% really low he's at 13% in may which is 14th among starters so you're talking about a massive 3.4 percentage point dip off there and that 9.6 would be around 61st rather than where he's been at in may which is 14th so he didn't have the hit and miss stuff and the good news is though again he did not give up a lot of loud contact 15 batted balls just three were hard hit that's 20% the best guy in the month of May is our old friend Michael Walker, who's at 22.2%. And Sale on Friday night, as I alluded to, he was at 20%. Sale is at 27% in the month of May, which is second behind only Michael Walker. So he's been really good in terms of the loud contact. So that was the good thing. So even though he didn't have the swing and miss stuff, the velocity was down. No hard hit balls virtually, right? So that was big. Two things. 
stick out to me about why sales velocity was down and why he didn't have the hit and miss stuff. So the first one is this is a new thing for sale. San Diego start six days in between, seven days in between St. Louis. So this was only the second time this season he had pitched on the normal four days of rest. So that's the first part. And I'm not making that up as an excuse, but it, it's a little bit different when your body hasn't been doing this for a couple of years. If you're Chris Sale, remember he barely pitched last year and two years ago, he's just coming back from the Tommy John. He didn't pitch a ton of innings that year. So the rest is shortened up. That's the first thing. But maybe more importantly, he was sick. We found out after the game that he'd been dealing with a stomach bug all week. So if you're throwing up, you got a stomach bug. It's going to be awfully difficult for you to have the energy throughout that start. So I thought... I took this as a positive, right? Because he found a way to battle through when he didn't have his best stuff, whether it was because of the illness, whether it was because of the normal rest. And what we saw earlier this season, when he didn't have his stuff, like the first start of the season against the Orioles, it's three home runs and it's seven runs. The next time against, or a couple starts later against Tampa, it's he gets blown up and he only lasts four innings, right? He's given up a lot of loud contact. So even though he didn't have his best stuff and it's going to happen to you throughout the season, You have to find a way to battle through it. So I thought that was, in some sense, an encouraging sign because I don't expect the velocity to be down next time. I think it's just, first, he's adapting to the rest part of it, and secondarily, he was dealing with an illness. So I'm not losing sleep at all over Chris Sale's velocity being down. In fact, I think it's more of an explanation. Oh, this is an answer. He was sick, and he hadn't pitched on four days rest since his second start of the season this year, right? So it had been a while because the Sox had done a really good job about spreading out the starts and not overworking them. So I'm not overly concerned about it. And the results were good, right? Even though it's five innings, he only gives up the one run. You'll take that any day of the week. Okay, Whitlock pitches on Saturday. This was his first post-IL start. Five innings, four strikeouts, just one earned run. It was the solo home run. That solo home run, by the way, bad sweeper to Marte. And it was a solo home run, so it doesn't kill you. But it's a breaking ball. He wants to throw it in. It is in. Like, it's off the plate. He wants to throw it in, but the problem is it's in the middle of the zone. So Marte can get his hands in, and it's easier for him to get his bat on that thing and hit it out of the ball. That has to be way down in the strike zone if you're throwing the sweeper there. It can't be in the middle of the strike zone because you give the hitter an opportunity. And it's an 0-2 count. It's just a bad pitch. But overall, he was good. Now, he didn't have the hit and miss stuff. He did have 15 called strikes. But here's the big thing that jumped out to me in this one. Against Milwaukee, pre-injured list, he didn't mix it up at all. It was 52 seamers out of his 81 pitches. So you're talking about 61.7% of his pitches were fastballs. The game on Saturday night, much better job mixing up. It was 39 two-seamers, 35 change-ups, more on that in a second, which is very important, and 18 sweepers, okay? So that needs to be the emphasis. The pitch mix has got to be better, and it was on Saturday. And the other thing, the, the reason I bring this up is... The reason he threw so many fastballs in the Milwaukee game, his changeup was playing like shit. Saturday, it was much better. So here, a couple things on that. The velocity was down 2.8 miles per hour. His fastball was up almost a mile per hour. So the interesting thing is the gap was bigger. So it's 94.1 with the two-seamer, 82.1 miles per hour on the changeup. Okay, so that's a 12-mile-per-hour difference. The reason we reference this is earlier this season, that had been a struggle. He was throwing his changeup too hard, okay? When his changeup was at its best, it was sitting at 83.1 in 2021. And this year, it was at 84.9, so almost up three miles per hour harder than what it was when it's at his best. So he didn't have the differential that he needed between the fastball and the changeup. And the other thing that was hurting him is his velocity, which was up almost a mile per hour on the fastball. He was never throwing his fastball 
slower, and he was never throwing his changeup harder. So there wasn't much differential between those two pitches, so he wasn't getting the results. And the other thing that was happening with that changeup was it didn't have the vertical break that it once had. So in the game on Saturday, 39 inches of vertical break. And the reason I bring that up, and he had one, by the way, that was 43. And it was ridiculous. He made Gurriel look silly, if you remember that one from the game. But the 39 inches of vertical break, it's a nine-inch increase. He was at 30 for the season. And if you look at him this year, as we mentioned, the 30, 2022 is at 33.3. 2021 is at 38.4. Tonight, it's at 39. That is the great changeup from Whitlock when he has that fade. He needs the fade on the changeup, and he didn't have it earlier this season. And then it was so bad that he went away from that. So from my perspective with Whitlock, this is an extremely encouraging sign that he actually has the good changeup back. That's his best pitch. That's been his best pitch. And he clearly had it in the game tonight, which is massive. Okay, one small note. The Red Sox going a small ball in this game was interesting where Reese McGuire bunted with the bases loaded to give the Red Sox a 2-1 lead. The run scored. And then just a small note in terms of small ball, Duran bunted and he ends up on second base because he's safe at first. It's a bad throw. It doesn't even go out of the infield and he's already at second. I mean, the guy is just flying. So Hey, take the runs any way you can. It was a smart move by Cora to put the bunts on there because Reese McGuire is probably not getting a hit in that particular situation, so I love that move. Oh, one other note, Casas, he singled on a two-seamer early in this game, which I liked it, didn't try to do too much, hit it to center field. And this was after the three hits on Friday. So on Friday, went down and got a changeup for a double to make it one nothing at that point, came off the bat at 110.5, double in the ninth on a changeup to 102.6, and his single was at 98.1. All those over the threshold of a hard hit ball at 95 miles an hour, especially the one that's 110.5, right? And so despite the slump recently, in May, the contact's been much better. 21 hard hit balls out of 42 batted balls, which is 50% prior to Saturday. Outstanding. Everything's coming off his bat loud. That was at 36.7% in March and April. So a huge increase there. And we know the numbers are bad in totality, right? He's hitting 199. But 17.4% walk rate, which is seventh in all of baseball. And I just look at him. I trust what he's doing in terms of the process because it's a lot of loud contact and he's very selective. Sometimes you'd like him to be a little bit more aggressive. But this Red Sox team, it's about being competitive this year. They have an opportunity to make the postseason. That's got to be a priority. But it's also about seeing what you have with some of these young guys. So I would continue to play. Casas, keep trotting them out there until you don't have a choice not to, right? Until you're too deep and you say, hey, we're not playing them. But I think there is going to be a chance here, or I think there's going to be a stretch here where he gets hot for like two to three weeks. And you're like, okay, this is when he puts it all together. And I know he's been frustrated this season. He's talked about that, but I think he's close to getting there. And I thought Friday was a really good sign. Another hit in the game on Saturday. And Jansen, finally a clean inning. No walks, 13 pitches, nine strikes. They did have a strikeout as well in this. Just huge because... Prior to this, four straight outings with a walk, including three in that second loss to St. Louis, which back-to-back games, he blew the save for the Red Sox. But pretty nice pitching performance in general from the bullpen. Crawford gives you two and a third, 27 pitches, 20 strikes. This guy is a strike-throwing machine. No hits, no walks. Hey, Cutter, come out here for a little bit. (laughs) Okay, fine. Yeah, I'll give you 27 pitches, 20 of them strikes, and... uh. Yeah, uh, how about I don't give up a hit? He's just phenomenal. So such a weapon to have that multi-inning guy, especially when you have guys like Sale and Paxton and even Bayo to a lesser extent. You want to be careful with these guys as the season goes on. So he's a great weapon to have. Okay. As oh, and like in tonight's game, you don't want to overtax Garrett Whitlock, right? Because he's coming back from the IL. You got to cut Crawford for a couple of innings. He's just such a luxury item for this Red Sox team. 
All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. As I said, we will be recording after the game on Monday, Game 7. Hopefully, we're talking about a Celtics win and getting ready for the NBA Finals. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.